Thank you very much. I'm Father Mitch Packwell, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we bring you sacred scripture through the lens of the apostolic tradition, the tradition that comes to us from the apostles. And we'd love to have you be part of the show. You can do so like these nice folks have done from all the way from Colorado to New Jersey and all the way down to Florida and Carolina. So we'd love having y'all come here visit. But also, if you can't do that, you can call. If you're in North America, it's 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can call country code 1, area code 205, 271-2980. You can also send us your questions and comments by email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we'll take a look at how that combination of faith and the virtue of humility softened our Lord's heart toward a Roman centurion and his slave who was desperate for a miracle healing. We'll also hear about how Jesus testifies to the centurion's faith as being above all the other people our Lord encountered in Israel. So, if you are following in my book, which is called Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee, um, you know, we are dealing with uh, the second miracle, the second meditation on the centurion. And by the way, you can still get that book at EWTNRC.com. It is item number 52885. So let's take a look at it. In Matthew chapter 8, this is chapter 5 of that book. In Matthew chapter 8, we're going to begin with verse 8 today. It says, But the centurion answered Jesus, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. Now, notice that our Lord was from our last episode, we, we talked about this. Our Lord was very willing to go to his house and lay hands on the servant, as he had done, for instance, for St. Peter's mother-in-law and a number of other people, the leper and such. So he's willing to come and heal the man. But the centurion objects to that. Not because he doesn't like Jesus or because he looks down on Jesus. It's just the opposite. He is aware of his own unworthiness. This is a very important point. And he knows that he is not worthy to have Jesus come in his house. Remember, this is a man who had been stationed at Capernaum. Capernaum, as I mentioned in the last episode, was the last town in the territory of Herod, 
So there were soldiers there to protect that border area. Uh, the border is just a few miles up the uh, shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And he had come to love the Jewish people and their religion. And I fully detect in this answer about his own unworthiness that he had come to see that the commandments of God had a truth to them. See, in Roman religion, there was no law code that came even close. There was no moral set of principles that came close to the Ten Commandments. The gods of Rome and Greece didn't give any commandments, largely because they were so obnoxious themselves. The pagan gods were raping women, killing the people. Sometimes they killed the women that they raped, victimizing further the victim. They would punish you if you thought that you could study them. If you started to, you know, the number of stories in the pagan religions about how trying to get fire got one guy condemned to pushing a rock up a mountain every day and then falling back down. And all kinds of mean-spirited elements. The whole Trojan War was started because Prince Paris of Troy had gotten three goddesses mad at him. Well, one god goddess liked him, but she, he said she was prettier than the other two. So they sent the whole Greek nation to get him and started this war that lasted 10 years. So this is how they stirred things up. And he was accustomed to that kind of religion. But in Judaism, he saw that God gave commandments and he expected everyone from kings to commoners to obey those Ten Commandments equally. And anybody, no matter what their status, was subject to God's condemnation for breaking the commandments. And that he could also see they were good commandments. These are good moral laws. And people who live in our big cities are seeing what happens when our politicians don't believe in the Ten Commandments, don't let you display them so that thieves and even murderers are getting away with crime. And so many people are suffering, especially poor people suffer at the hands of these thieves and uh, murderers and rapists. And he, he can see that this was a good law that made for a better society, but it also meant that he recognized he wasn't worthy because he hadn't kept those laws. He didn't know about them earlier in his life. And Roman soldiers got away with an awful lot of stuff just because they worked for the government of Rome and they had swords and the rest of the people didn't. They were tough. 
And so that's very much the basis of his humility. He also understands from his own experience, and this is another very important part of humility, that you reflect on your own experience and apply it to yourself. So he knows, I give orders and people obey me because the centurion was a significant officer in the Roman army. And as su- and then he had to obey orders from his superior officers, the generals and such. And so he understood that and he understood that Christ was the one who had the power to give an order for a healing that he didn't. He could have given orders in battle to go catch thieves and such, but he knew that Christ had another kind of holiness and power by which he could give orders. And that holiness of Christ made the centurion unworthy to have him there. And he knew that Jesus' power made it unnecessary for him to come. He didn't have to come because he had enough power to heal from anywhere. And he was so holy. Now, all of us Catholics know very well how impressed the church has been with that combination of faith and humility in this centurion. Because right before we receive Holy Communion, the priest breaks the host, breaks off a fragment, and places that fragment into the chalice, right? And then, uh, and by the way, that's a symbol of the resurrection. I don't know if you're aware of that, but that's what that's trying to signify. At the consecration of the body and then the blood of Christ, it is a sign of death because any of us know when your blood is separated from your body, you're dead. That's why the consecration signifies the death of Christ. But at communion, we break the host all, a piece off and unite the body and blood as a sign of the resurrection. And then the priest raises the host as a sign of the ascension. And he says, you know, behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. The supper of the Lamb that was predicted and, and described in the book of Revelation for heaven. But already at the Holy Eucharist, we are participating in a foretaste of heaven by being called to the supper of the Lamb. And then we say, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. The very words of this centurion. That's why they, the, the Latin always had said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, my soul shall be healed. For a few years, they had a translation, you know, I'm not worthy to receive you. But we, we went back to a more literal translation so that you could see the connection with this passage in Matthew chapter 8. And understand, we have to have the faith and humility of the centurion. 
and contemplate that before we receive communion. And so we say his words to our Lord. And yet we also add, say but the word and my soul be healed. Not my servant, not somebody else, but the power of Christ present as the blessed sacrament, Jesus present there, is able to heal our souls. That's why we, we do teach that the ordinary way for the forgiveness of venial sin is at Mass. You know, mortal sin, you have to go to confession. But for venial sin, the Eucharist is the place where that's forgiven and healed. And we, we seek that. Um, we don't receive communion if we're in the state of mortal sin, but we do have to, uh, but we do expect that our venial sins are forgiven there too. And then there's also implied in that statement, that prayer, Lord, I'm not worthy, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. That recognition of the need of healing. Sin has a lot of effects on us. And not just the sins that other people do to us, the sins we commit have a big effect on us. And there's a need for healing, as well as the effects that, of sin in general, as well as of sickness. So this is part of the healing that helps to cleanse the soul even after sin is forgiven, because we make a distinction. You can have the forgiveness of sin, but the effects of sin may still be there. You can be sorry and the sin is forgiven. That's an act of the will. But the damage done by the sin still needs healing. So if you have someone who's mad at you and, you know, and says all kinds of things and that some of that hurt that goes on. That's where we bring that for healing. And the, the, the same thing with, you know, people who look up pornography and stuff. They need to have not only a forgiveness for committing that sin, but they also need to heal the effects because that becomes a very addictive sin. Same with people who get drunk or use drugs, all these things. These are very, very important things that have effects. There's the sin of drunkenness and drug abuse, but there's also the effects of it on the soul. And they need Christ to come and heal that. Now, this is something for us to keep in mind. As we go to Holy Communion, not walking up there to get a piece of bread or a drink of wine. We don't serve bread and wine at my church. It's the body of Jesus Christ and his precious blood. I come there to receive Jesus. This is a very important thing. And it is his body, blood, soul, and divinity that are present. And we do well to consider that infinite holiness of Jesus Christ, the person we receive under the form of bread and wine, that this is very much what the one that we're inviting into our hearts to recenter our hearts 
to refocus us, to keep us in, uh, together in life. Because another aspect of sin is that it fragments us, tears us apart from one another. This is very important. And on one hand, a lot of Catholics over the past decades have emphasized that the Eucharist is a meal. And there's a certain element of that that's true. We do come to receive uh, this sacred meal, but it's not exactly this, just a meal, it's certainly not just a meal. It is also this, a meal because of the sacrifice that is entailed. It is receiving the body and blood of Christ. It's asking Jesus into our hearts for eternal life. And one of the things that we have to keep very much at the forefront of our mind, that this is an entrance into the relationship with Jesus Christ. This is part of that relationship with him. And it's there to strengthen that bond and keep us united. Just like the Roman centurion could see, but with faith, with faith, he could see beyond the ordinary appearance of Jesus. Our Lord was wearing clothes like anybody else of Galilee would be wearing in that period of time. But he breaks through that ordinariness and sees power and holiness in Jesus. And he recognizes that in his humility. Same thing with us. We have to be able to recognize Jesus. As uh, I was celebrating Mass uh, after the family uh, get-together in Phoenix, I went to a small town of Parker over in western Arizona. And as I did the congregation, uh, consecration at the couple of the masses, I could audibly hear people say, whispering to themselves, but still out loud with wonder, my Lord and my God. Like St. Thomas the Apostle, we make that profession of faith that this is my Lord and my God. And when we say amen as we receive our Lord, we're making an act of faith like the centurion. We made his act of humility, and then we receive the body of Christ with an act of faith. Amen. It is true. It is so. I believe this. And I recommend that you contemplate this aspect of the centurion in the connection with the Eucharist, by concluding with the prayer, soul of Christ. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, strengthen me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Make that your prayer. Not only when you meditate on this, but each time you receive our Lord in Holy Communion. Then we'll come back and take a look at the after effect of this. So please stay with us.
Thank you. I'd like to now take a look at the third meditation I wrote about regarding the centurion. And in this one, we see how Jesus praises the centurion in Matthew 8, verses 10 through 12. Notice it says there, when Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is something where our Lord recognizes the centurion's humility as an act of faith. And that's why he says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The man was exemplary in being humble, but that humility expressed faith in Jesus' goodness and power. And that's very important. And something that adds to his marvel, because he, he's, he's just amazed at this faith, is that it exceeded that of the people of Israel, including his apostles. It's not like they've been so exemplary, now have they? And in the future, we'll see in the gospel how the apostles oftentimes don't have faith. Just, you don't believe me, read about what happened in Gethsemane. And afterwards, they didn't show a lot of faith. So this man has tremendous faith. And this is especially after Israel had a 1900-year experience of dealing with their relationship with God. You know, the uh, people of Israel had made a lot of mistakes over the years, lots of, uh, as a matter of fact, one, of, one aspect of the genius of Israel is also the humility seen within Israel by allowing the stories of their greatest heroes to include stories about their sinful behavior. They weren't perfect. Abraham and Isaac lied about their wives. Jacob cheat, cheated his own brother and lied to his blind father. And it goes on and on and on with the whole history. David committed adultery. And, uh, the various uh, kings and heroes showed themselves to be sinful people. And Israel included that in the Bible. And that usually wasn't the case among the pagans. They usually didn't include those faults unless the person whom they wrote down their faults about had been kicked out of power. Then they might say something bad. But as long as he was in power, they wouldn't say anything bad. In Israel, they could, even to their own face. Prophets would go and tell the kings that they were doing, committing sin and doing wrong. And... This is something that 
Israel had suffered from, and especially in the Babylonian exile. And after the Babylonian exile, they really got the idea you only worship the one God. They learned a lot of tough lessons from suffering in history. There's no doubt of that. But this Gentile centurion expressed even more faith than the Israelites around him, and he did it because he was so humble and he trusted in Christ's power. And he did, he trusted in Christ's power more than most of the Jewish people around him who had a lot more sophisticated understanding of biblical theology. They understood the Bible well, and they often had very precise ways of expressing the theology. But, and that what, not that they were wrong, they were typically telling the truth, but they didn't live out the faith of their creed. They didn't live that in a way that showed the kind of trust and faith that sprang from the humility of the centurion. Jesus then immediately used this as an opportunity to speak to the Jewish crowd that was following him. He didn't say this to the uh, centurion. Notice it says he spoke to his followers, the people who are already starting to have faith in him among the Jewish people. And he says that many more strangers would come from east and west to share in the banquet of the kingdom of God. This is a very important thing. And in fact, I have often told when, when I was leading groups to Israel, um, a lot of people would see the desert, especially in the south, and sort of scratch their heads and say, exactly why is this the promised land? There's a lot of rocks and dirt here. And part of my answer was and still is that the two roads, we've talked about these roads many times already, but those two roads, the King's Highway, which is now in the Kingdom of Jordan, and the way of the sea that is in Israel and goes along the coast from Egypt all the way up to Mesopotamia and to uh, eventually to Europe. Those two roads link Africa, Asia, and Europe. And Israel is right in between those two roads. If you're the Lord God and you want a message to get out from east to west, those two roads are the ways to do it. And our Lord promises that they'll be all the way from east to west. And we'll see even within that first generation, apostles will go as far west as, as Spain. St. Paul apparently went there. And as far east as India. And that didn't have them stop. They kept going and have gone all around the world already. Two nations in Asia are now majority Christian, Philippines and South Korea. And, you know, we have majority Christian countries around the world. And today, you know, you might hear that Islam is the fastest growing religion. That's only a position held by people that 
remain ignorant of what's going on throughout the world. Christianity is still the fastest growing religion. So that now Africa is a majority Christian continent. That's why they're sending missionaries to us. And this is something that even China has a couple hundred million Christians. It's a minority. But a couple hundred million Christians is more than we have in a lot of Christian countries. So, and that's at risk of great persecution and, and imprisonment, but they still have their faith. This is something that our Lord had predicted, and it's true. It's happening. But we also see that he mentions the other consequence, something he will talk about in his parables. He says that those who do not have faith will be thrown into the darkness of eternal suffering. Now, in ancient Egypt, for instance, they didn't believe in hell. They just didn't know anything one way or the other. In ancient Egypt, they believed that if you were a bad person, you just ceased to exist. There, good people would exist forever. They looked for a resurrection of the body. That's why they made mummies and put all kinds of furniture and other stuff in their tombs. And they've been doing that since the 3000s BC. So 5,000 years ago, they started doing that. And they, but they believed that if you weren't good, if you were a bad person, you just ceased to exist. That's why a lot of times the Egyptians erased the names of people they didn't like. You don't exist. That was their attitude. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that once you exist, once your soul exists in the womb of your mother at the moment of conception from into all eternity, your soul exists. This is why we show great respect in the way we bury the dead. We don't mummify, but we respect the bodies of the dead because we also look forward to a resurrection, not with all our stuff, but with the glory that Jesus Christ will give us. And yet people who do not have faith, as our Lord says, will be thrown into the darkness of eternal suffering. That's what the option is. Those who refuse to believe will endure a pain that comes from not professing faith and living it. That's why we see in John 3, verse 16 to 18. Everybody likes John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. That's the goal of faith, to have eternal life. Indeed, it goes on in verse 17, Indeed, God did not send the Son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. It's a basic choice to have faith or not. And this is something that we all have to consider in our own lives. Consider our own acts of faith. 
will I have faith and will I trust in Jesus so that he invites me into the eternal banquet of God in his kingdom? Or will I reject faith and be thrown into the great darkness? This is the, this is the choice we have. We will be in the position of the centurion eventually. Remember Jesus said to him, go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. Because of his faith, Jesus could heal his servant. Had he rejected faith, our Lord's words make it clear, your servant won't be healed. Just as if we reject faith, when we receive communion, we don't believe, then we will not be healed in our souls. This is something that is a very important part. And the humility of the man is what made his humble faith, in fact, made the healing possible. His unworthiness did not prevent the healing. Being unworthy applies to all of us. The Pope isn't worthy. The bishops aren't worthy. None of us is worthy. The only one who was worthy to receive Christ would be his blessed mother, who received him in a very special way at the incarnation, but also was there for those first masses. She was in the upper room with the apostles as they celebrated the first Eucharists. She was worthy. The rest of us aren't. But if we have faith and humility, a humble faith, our unworthiness won't block us from salvation at all. We just have to be like the centurion. We need to ask for the gift of faith to continue to grow within us and to make an act of the will that chooses to take God's truth on his terms, to believe what God revealed about himself. That's what the creeds do. The creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, summarize our faith. They draw from the Scripture, hold the whole teaching of Scripture together and put it in an, uh, the one statement about our faith in God. And... That's why I recommend that you conclude your prayer with the Apostles' Creed, where we, where we begin our praying of the rosary. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, he come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let that amen be an accepting of that faith and humbly asking our Lord for grace to ever grow more deeply. Okay? All right. Well, let's start off with a caller. 
Um, we have Dan. Dan, you're in Little River, South Carolina? Yes, Father. Ever been out here? It's right next to Myrtle Beach. Oh, how much damage did you get from the hurricane? We had a lot of wind and coast, some coastal, but, not, but we were spared. We were blessed. Oh, okay, good. Well, God oh. bless you. Now we all, all... It's such a pleasure listening to you. And, Thank uh, you, sir. I, I had this question that I had called into. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the gentleman's name uh, called to communion? And they were they were kind of vague and actually put me in direction to get in touch with you because I <laughs> I've, I've been pondering for some time about the mm -hmm. fact that I keep reading in the gospel or it comes up how Christ taught uh, the apostles and his disciples to go forth and evangelize, mm -hmm. and in so doing he gave them the gifts to heal, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, get rid of demons, and showed them how he himself had mm -hmm. uh, provided miracles to sure. people. My question is, if these were gifts to them, then how, how or why wasn't this passed down through the ages? Why aren't our priests sure. today able to do this? Well, how Dan, first of all, I'm going to suggest that they haven't stopped and never did, that there have been uh, throughout our history various folks who've been given these gifts. Matter of fact, there's a, I forget, I think it's in one of his letters that St. Augustine had written that he thought the gift of tongues had stopped. But as he was confirming people at the Easter Vigil, they started to sing in tongues. And in fact, the Catholic Church is by far the largest charismatic church in the world. In fact, there are more Catholic charismatics who have, these are people who seek these gifts uh, that of the Holy Spirit, like praying in tongues and prophecy and healing and such. And these gifts are evident in many places throughout the world in the church. There are about 200 million uh, Catholic charismatics at this point, which is larger than all the other charismatic denominations combined. Now, there are a number of things that can happen. One, people can become weak in faith and they don't seek these gifts. That's one thing that happens. Another, and I think this has been one problem, a lot of people so focus on evangel on uh, healing and they'll come for healing, but they won't come and seek to evangelize. They keep seeking that gift instead of the giver, and they don't seek to share the gospel with others because I have so many needs of my own for healing. So I just need to get healed and they keep coming back for that. And our Lord will then shift the gifts over to some place where people can use them to their point uh, to evangelize. There are a variety of things going on throughout the history of the church, but they never really stopped. And anybody who's been to some of the great shrines like St. Anne de Beaupre in Canada, 
Lourdes or Fatima and many other places know that they get uh, have all kinds of people who are healed quite dramatically. In fact, I was once at a large meeting in Notre Dame and a man was praying for healing and a girl whom I knew, uh, she was about 17, I guess. Uh, her mother was a friend of mine and she was there with her mom and she was blind and she got her sight right then and there. You know, I, was, I saw her just start walking around and going up and down stairs because she'd never seen things before. So it still happens. But we also have to ask our Lord a couple of things. Um, Lord, make me worthy to be your servant and also increase my faith that I can be your minister and help me to use those gifts for your purpose. These are some of the things that we need to keep in mind. And I think that's going to be um, part of what we need to all do. Because there's, and by the way, also we mentioned casting out demons. The number of exorcists in the church has gone up way high because there's so many people playing with the occult that they've opened themselves up to the demonic. And so now there are more exorcists around the world. There's a school for exorcists. Because, but you also have to be prepared in faith, humility, and holiness to do that work because it's very risky to play with that stuff. So these are some of the things that we're there. We just need more of it, okay? All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with more of your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Tomorrow night on EWTN Live, we'll be talking with filmmaker Kevin Dunn and missionary Dennis Gerard about a new documentary called Bridge of Roses, the story of Our Lady of the Cape, which tells about a true story of a rosary devotion revival in the parish of Cap de la Madeleine in Quebec Province, Canada and several miracles and graces that followed it, including a miraculous mile and a half-long ice bridge that formed over the St. Lawrence River in the spring of 1879, enabling the construction of a larger church. So, well, see, asking that guy, we'll be talking about miracles tomorrow night again. And you can watch the premiere of the Bridge of Roses documentary tomorrow night on EWTN at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. So look forward to that uh, program. Now, start off with a question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Colorado. Well, you something. That, uh, <laughs> what part? Uh, Colorado Springs, mainly south of there, about okay. 25 yeah. miles. That's still one of my favorite places. As far as I was concerned as a little boy, that was cowboy land. I loved it there. <laughs> still is. I know it. I got my first <laughs> boots and hat over there. 
So what can we do for you? Well, thank you for taking my question. Sorry. Recently, I was speaking with my sister-in-law, and she shared with me that when she was trying to explain to someone that the Eucharist is the true body and blood of Christ, the person responded to her, well, isn't that cannibalism? Hmm. How would you address that? First of all, before you start judging that, by calling it cannibalism, it's good to keep in mind that it was our blessed Lord who gave us, us the Eucharist as His body and blood. And it's our same blessed Lord who said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have eternal life. Now, you want to start off with that. And then as you follow the conversation, it was his opponents who also made the same claim that this is cannibalism. Is he going to give us his own flesh to eat? Now, it was explained that he gives us his body and blood in the form of bread and wine. And then he commands his disciples, do this in memory of me. But that argument was made not only by his opponents in the crowd in the synagogue, but it was also used by the pagans. And I'm wondering, what kind of background does your friend have? You know, I, I don't know. You, they, need, they might need to read the sacred scripture a little bit more and understand what our Lord taught about the Eucharist. And what, uh, something that, I don't know if this would be a help to them or not, I wrote a book uh, called The Eucharist, a Bible study for Catholics, in which I go through the biblical teaching that's Old Testament background and New Testament teaching. And that may be a help so that they can see through that kind of objection. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I have another question from our audience. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Paramus, New, Jer New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, Northern yeah, sure, Jersey. sure. Thank you for answering this question. Now, let me ask you this. I, I know that New Jersey is called the Garden State. Is that a garden part? Not really. Yeah. It's a so, mall part. <laughs> yeah. New Jersey has to figure out a way to stop covering up the garden part because parts of New Jersey are so beautiful, yeah. but you just don't see it from New York skyline. That's I all. I know. <laughs> True. So um, what you got there? Um, attacking the problem of the lack of uh, faith in the Eucharist, mm -hmm. the USCCB has done a, a Eucharistic revival for the next right. three years. Right. How would you suggest that the believers could participate in this? Yep. Perfect. One of the things, uh, well, again, that I wrote that book. That, that book would be a help. And there are other books on the Eucharist by which people can take a look and set up Bible studies to teach about sacred Eucharist. That would be, you know, have in your homes and in your parishes and in your schools and adult education. That's one of the things they want. And I lay out the two aspects of the Eucharist that have been consistent teaching of the church from Christ forward. Namely, this is the real presence of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and it's a sacrificial nature. That would be the, the things I want to lay out. 
and see it from Scripture. And instead of us arguing with them, let them confront the words of Jesus Christ. Take a look at what our Lord taught. It's not whether you agree with me. What's important is that you agree with him and see what he says about the Eucharist. That's what matters. And let that be the confrontation in their own, to their own faith and see how important that is. Okay? Sir, where are hey. you from? Maggie Valley, North Carolina, close to Asheville. Good, good to have you here. Welcome. And what can we do for you? I've been reading a book by Dr. Ralph Martin, Fulfillment of All Desires, mm -hmm. and been sharing that with my sister who's turning 90 years old in November. By um, the way, make sure you tell her what George Burns said. What? I want to live to be 100. <laughs> Not many people over 100 die. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very good. Go ahead. So I was sharing with Dr. Ralph Martin what he said in the book and about being holy in order to get to heaven. So she asked me a question that I couldn't answer. How holy do we have to be to get to heaven? One of the things about that question is that it sometimes thinks of holiness as something you can quantify. And instead, notice how in Leviticus 19, verse 2, it says, Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness comes from being like God. And in that relationship with him is the way that he transforms us. He turns us into what he is. And rather than worrying about how much or quantifying it, just come closer and closer to him because he's the one who will transform you into holiness. Don't worry about what you're doing. Worry about what the Lord is doing. And that will be the way out. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and this is going to applies to us at different stages of life. The way a little kid is holy, it's going to be different than it is for a 90 year old. You know, the, there's another kind of wisdom and relationship you're capable of. Little kids can be holy and saints. Number of canonized ch children, saints from the holy innocence forward. But you have to pay attention to you at your stage, okay? All right. And then um, uh, we have, oh, uh, something here, uh, an email that was just sent to us. Uh, it says, Hi, Father. During the consecration, the priest says, This is my body, which will be given up for you. That always puzzles me. I don't know why it wouldn't say which was given up. Ah, it feels like we're crucifying Jesus over again. Jerry in Howell, Michigan. Jerry, we're not crucifying Jesus again. See, what's at core of understanding those words, uh, my body which will be given up for you, is something that first of all can only be understood if we believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son made flesh. Because in his divinity, his death is not in the past. His death is present. His resurrection is present. 
He has no past or future. God is truly eternal as well as infinite, and there's no time limit on God. And the reason that we, uh, we're quoting him, because he will, his body will be given up for you as it's offered to those who have faith and are in the state of sanctifying grace to receive him a few minutes after that moment. So, no, you're not crucifying Jesus again. It's rather that every Eucharist is a participation in the one saving death, the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that's what we do, is just represent what is always there. All right. Lord, bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And as you know, Mother Angelica was inspired by our Lord to have you bring this network to you, not advertisers. So we ask that you please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. Thank you, and God bless.